the BBC documentaries that dig into Narendra Modi's past in a way Indian reporters cannot. The Russian oligarch who owns a mercenary army and enlists courts overseas to keep the truth contained. Plus, the working class versus the mass media. It makes me laugh that your level of journalism has descended so far that you can't think of any other question. The union leader who's exposing biased British journalism. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and analyze how news gets reported. We begin with a BBC series about Narendra Modi the Indian government's decision to ban the documentaries and the fallout. The first installment of the series takes viewers back 20 years to 2002 and communal rioting in the state of Gujarat in which more than a thousand people, the vast majority of them Muslim, were killed. The film features a British government investigation which concluded that Modi, who was in charge of Gujarat at the time as its chief minister, was directly responsible for those murders that the riots which police stood by and let happen bore the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing. India's Supreme Court later cleared Modi of wrongdoing and since his election as Prime Minister in 2014, journalists have treated this story as a red line not to be crossed. The government's decision to ban the BBC documentary, which extends to social media, has become its own story. It has also drawn global attention to Modi's record in office and the subsequent decline of media freedom in the world's largest democracy. In this digital world where brevity is king and short, punchy news stories are designed for shrinking attention spans, the BBC's series, India, The Modi Question, speaks to the impact that long-form investigative journalism can still have. Episode 1 of the series focuses on 2002 and the communal violence between Hindus and Muslims that shook the western state of Gujarat. The government issued directions for blocking multiple YouTube and Twitter posts sharing links to the controversial BBC documentary. Gujarat was led at the time by Narendra Modi, who 12 years later was elected India's Prime Minister having tried and mostly succeeded in putting allegations of complicity in the riots behind him, until now. Modi has spent a lot of time refurbishing his image on the international stage. This was a man who was once banned from entering the US and the UK. Uh, he's now remade his image as someone who is on the world stage and welcomed and looked up to. And this documentary brings back in very stark terms what they have worked very hard to suppress and bury. The Supreme Court has essentially dismissed all cases against uh, Prime Minister Modi in the context of the Gujarat riots. So even domestic audiences don't talk about it very often. So why is the BBC uh, bringing this up? What could be the motivation? That's the reaction from the Indian government. We think this is a, a propaganda piece uh, designed to push a particular discredited narrative. Um, the bias, a lack of objectivity, and frankly, a continuing colonial mindset is blatantly visible. Every possible Even allegation that has been leveled against uh, the Prime Minister and how his government handled Gujarat riots has been repeated ad nauseum. And uh, the truth is that uh, nothing has really hurt the, uh, the Prime Minister over the last uh, so many years. In fact, 
the Gujarat riots and the way it has been handled has been the reason why the BJP keeps returning to power. The Gujarat riots were set off when a train there was set on fire and 59 Hindus were killed. Members of the Muslim minority were blamed. Revenge was quick in coming. For three days, Muslims were targeted. Nearly a thousand of them were killed. Journalists from various news outlets, not just the BBC, reported that police mostly stood by and let it happen. It was assumed they were following orders from on high. Just how high has always been the question. The BBC documentary revealed that because three of the Muslims killed were British citizens, the UK government conducted its own investigation into what happened. The report, sent as a diplomatic cable and marked restricted, has never been published before. Investigators concluded that Narendra Modi was directly responsible for the pogrom, which they said met the definition of ethnic cleansing. When preview clips of the film started circulating on social media, Modi's BJP government acted, preemptively banning the BBC series and forbidding the sharing of it online. In this day and age, uh, it is like a fool's errand to try and stop the circulation of something like a documentary. And I think the desire to control the terms of the debate has led to the ban, which in my view is entirely counterproductive, not just because bans never work, but also it is quite damaging for India's international image as a multicultural liberal democracy. If you look at the print media, it has been rather critical of the way the government has decided to clamp down on the documentary. But the television media trash the BBC in every which way. The BBC Rahul is a methane spewing landfill of lies, fraud and selectivity. And every now and then, the methane self combusts and the putrid smell is all pervasive. And the BBC, because it is not just Western, but also British, part of the empire, uh, you know, a colonial mindset is a term. I find it disappointing as an Indian and a young Indian hmm. to see our old colonial rulers still trying to dabble in this country. Is it a disproportionate response? Of course it is. But when things are banned, when you block access to certain things, public curiosity rises. So Indians are relying on pirate sites, surreptitiously sharing links. When students in New Delhi set up a screening at their university, the authorities cut off the electricity. We contacted multiple government officials, as well as pro-BJP voices in the media, requesting interviews. None of them agreed. Some people have been accusing you The BBC series also explores the approach Prime Minister Modi has taken with the Indian news media, starting with what he said about that in 2002. Do you think there's anything that you should have done differently? Yes. One area where I was uh, very, very big, and that was how to handle the media. Since becoming Prime Minister in 2014, Modi has made up for lost time. His BJP government has been heavy-handed with the Indian media and voices of dissent. Most of the country's hundreds of news channels do not need policing. Many echo Modi's brand of Hindu nationalism, usually at the expense of Muslims. Print and online journalists who are more balanced have it tougher, routinely facing harassment, 
intimidation, and sometimes legal charges and jail terms. Reporters are mindful of the red lines, and many news outlets have grown dependent on government ad revenues for survival. Under Modi's prime ministership, India has fallen to 150th out of the 180 countries on the Reporters Without Borders World Press Freedom Index. According to the NGO, there are autocracies that have better freedom of the press than Narendra Modi's India, which calls itself the world's largest democracy. Mr. Modi has not held a single press conference uh, since he has been prime minister. He does an occasional sit down with chosen journalists. That's more about his personality rather than about politics. Um, and then you have the story of the Indian media itself. The Indian media have undergone a tremendous shift uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so, uh, where political debate on the media seems very one-sided. The Indian media depends very heavily on government advertising. You pick up a, a newspaper in, in the capital and the first four pages will be government ads. Either the prime minister or a state chief minister beaming down at you from what should be the front page. And this obviously puts pressure on editorial positions. The government has used all kinds of methods, including uh, enforcement directorate raids, including intimidation of critics, activists, academics, including uh, imprisonment of journalists. Uh, this is a across-the-board method, and it has resulted in the kind of media climate in which they don't have to do all that much before people will back down themselves. But when they don't back down, they, uh, the government does not shy away from coming down very hard. And the government is making legal changes to allow for more of that, through one of the laws it's using to force social media companies to take down links to the BBC series, the Information Technology Rules Act. The changes will bar those platforms from hosting any information the authorities identify as false. The Editors Guild of India, which presumably doesn't have a colonial mindset, says the amended law will stifle legitimate criticism and the ability of the press to hold governments to account. And that was how to handle the media. Two decades ago, Narendra Modi provided a strong hint of what his approach to the Indian media would be. And now he has all those news channels helping him and the BJP divide the country pitting Hindus against Muslims. Indians have seen this before, in 2002, but not on a national scale, with so many more media outlets involved. BJP's MO, this is what they do, this is their way of winning elections, is to polarize the country along religious lines. The Home Minister, Amit Shah, said in an election rally in Gujarat last year that those who were taught a lesson in 2002 will never do it again, or words to that effect. That is an admission of what happened in 2002, that there was a deliberate intent to teach a lesson to Muslims. And it works electorally for the BJP because many, uh, many people who want to see this happen will rally behind it. To the United Kingdom now, where two investigations have pulled back the curtain 
on libel lawyers in London and how they have helped one of Vladimir Putin's key allies to go after his critics, including journalists, in the British courts. Tarek Nafa has been following the story. Yevgeny Prigozhin runs a mercenary group called Wagner that's fighting alongside Russian forces in Ukraine. And wherever Wagner forces go, allegations of war crimes follow. In November last year, when a video surfaced appearing to show a Wagner deserter in Ukraine being killed with a sledgehammer, Prigozhin called it excellent directorial work that's watchable in one sitting. Until quite recently, the oligarch denied any links to Wagner. Back in 2020, when investigative organizations like Bellingcat began to reveal those links, Prigozhin faced international sanctions as a consequence. According to investigations by Open Democracy and the Financial Times, that's when Prigozhin hired a London firm, Discreet Law, to pursue a libel case against Bellingcat's director, Elliot Higgins. Discreet Law was licensed, approved by the UK government to do that work. The libel case was dropped after Russia invaded Ukraine. Prigozhin eventually admitted he was the man behind Wagner, and Bellingcat's journalism was proven accurate. Which raises serious questions. Why was a sanctioned warlord given the UK government's approval to abuse the court system in a legal attack on a journalist? what Higgins calls an act of revenge by Prigozhin. One MP proposed his own piece of legislation this week aimed at the slaps culture in London, what he called a form of legal gangsterism. Thanks, Tarek. Staying with the United Kingdom now, which is in a state of political disarray, having gone through three prime ministers in the past six months and counting with citizens dealing with a cost of living crunch. That has fueled a wave of work stoppages that has put trade unions and the news media's treatment of them into the spotlight. As successive strikes have hit rail networks, influential right-wing newspapers, including those owned by Rupert Murdoch, have sided with the paymasters, the government, vilifying the union for travel disruptions. Then came a series of hostile interviews with the union's leader, Mick Lynch. But Lynch has turned the tables putting journalists on the defensive over their habitual anti-union approach. Combative exchanges have gone viral, boosting public support for striking workers and exposing the kind of journalistic animosity that has undermined the UK's working classes for decades. The Listening Post's Daniel Turi now on the coverage of labour issues in the British news media. More than 100,000 Royal Mail postal workers have gone on strike in a dispute over pay. We're in an unprecedented moment in British politics. For the first time in 40 years, we're having a significant burst of inflation. Workers at the country's largest container shipping port, Felixstowe, have joined the list of those on strike for more. Prices are rising by something like 10%, 12%, 13% a year. Barristers have been taking action for over a month, escalating now with a vote for all-out action. And we've been through something like 15 years of repeated squeezes on people's wages. It's the biggest train strike in over three decades. And into this moment, trade unions suddenly have this huge central significance. At the forefront of the strike sweeping across Britain is the Rail Maritime and Transport Union, the RMT. 
In June, its members walked out for the sixth time in as many months over pay and planned job cuts. For three days, much of the country's metro and rail network was at a standstill. And in the news coverage, the RMT was feeling the heat. For a lot of our viewers, you are the face of the stress, the disruption that they're going to face. But when the union's leader, Mick Lynch, hit the TV studios, the tables began to turn. Mick Lynch is someone who is prepared to take on the media in a way that, that we don't often see. And however much the journalists try to attack him, he can stand up to it. Are you or are you not a Marxist? Because if you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution and into bringing down capitalism. <laughs> Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes. His technique is very much to question the questioner. Does it look like the minor strike? <laughs> It's very rare for a trade union leader um, to be able to stand up to media pressure. The way a TV interview used to go with a trade union leader is a trade union leader would turn up in the studio and would basically be bullied by a TV presenter. You see the marginalised role of trade unions in many areas of life. You're a dinosaur. Well, you know, at the end of the day, uh, that was around for a long while. You watch Mick Lynch do a TV interview. The TV presenter might have one or two facts. And Mick Lynch knows the book on, on, on his own dispute. But, interestingly, what he's doing is he's talking directly past the interviewer to the public. Because people can't take it anymore. We've got people who are, who are doing full-time jobs who are having to take state benefits and use food banks. That is a national disgrace. He's making clear that the dispute has got something to do with everyone sat at home watching this interview. It's the sort of message that really has struck a chord because, because of inflation, there are a lot of frightened people in this country and they see at last, here's a union leader who can stand up for them in the media and they like it. By the time the rail strike was ending and Mick Lynch was done sparring with the media, something highly unusual had happened. Public opinion had swung behind the RMT. But it wasn't enough to force the government and the rail companies it owns to offer a deal. Industrial disputes take time, and in the past, hostile news coverage has helped to break strikes much larger than the RMT's. Good evening. A critical week for the miners' strike. Will it flare up into an all-out war between the unions and the government? Or will it fizzle out? As... In the 1980s, the Conservative Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, privatised British industries and took on trade unions that stood in her way. The coal miners' union, led by Arthur Scargill, was among the largest and most militant. And when they went on strike, Thatcher made an example of them. In the year-long nationwide dispute that followed, the media would play a pivotal role starting with Thatcher's allies in the press. The trade unions were operating in the 1980s against a backcloth of an unsympathetic press, and that's putting it mildly. The interests of the owners of the newspapers was themselves to limit the power of the trade unions. Before the 1980s, the, the print unions decided whether or not the newspapers came out, and the proprietors resented that. The miners' strike was defined by battles outside coal works, between strikers trying to shut down production and the police. 
Police officers committed the worst of the violence, sometimes unprovoked. But it was the violence of Scargill strikers that dominated the headlines, producing a powerful media narrative of the miners as an angry mob and Scargill as a public enemy. What was so exceptional about the miners' strike was that we had a government that understood how to use the media. If you can use uh, uh, the newspapers to set up the agenda, this will also be reflected in what appears on radio and television. After two hours, the police were tired of being pushed and pelted with house bricks. The pickets knew what to expect. They'd been warned it could turn nasty, and it did. These were the strikers who were threatening law and order. These were the strikers who were the Marxists who wanted to bring down the government of the day. There was no doubt that Scargill was demonised to a degree that no other union leader has in my lifetime. To a certain extent, Scargill, Arthur Scargill, was his own worst enemy. To hell with an industry that can't pay high wages. He cast himself in a, in a very aggressive role, and that enabled the press to make him out as some sort of devil incarnate who was there to try to take the country down. I look back as a broadcaster, I was with the BBC, and I really realised that, although I was inadvertent, I'd become almost a cheerleader for Mrs Thatcher because I was following her agenda. She was determined to get half the miners back at work and then she could declare victory, which she did. And it was done on the back of the news media. Britain's trade unions still live in the shadow cast by the Thatcher years. Fenced in by some of the strictest anti-strike laws in Europe, their membership has declined by half since their peak in the late 70s. The journalists who used to cover them, industrial correspondents, have all but vanished too, replaced by business reporters or generalists like the presenters Mick Lynch has faced, who are often better at generating heat for ratings and clicks than they are at shedding light. It makes me laugh, honestly, that you have the hood as your profile pic, because that's a man who wreaked havoc on the world. Well, it makes me laugh that your level of journalism has descended so far that you can't think of any other question rather than... A, a I think about... I'm here at the picket line for the latest rail strike in central London. It's the RMT's seventh strike so far this year, and I've come here to ask Mick Lynch how he sees the British media today compared to the days of Arthur Scargill. Well, back in those days, we had the uh, press, me the uh, newspaper media, and we had a couple of channels, BBC and ITV. But what we've got now is, a, is a, a flourishing of outlets. There's lots of different digital channels, but also the social media channels, and it allows trade unionists to have more of a say. Whether it gets across or not is another way, because the written media is still a very important uh, aspect in this country. So you now have a lot more public support for your cause than you did at the time of the last strike. Do you secretly want to thank those TV presenters? Well, there's been a turn. I think what happens to those journalists, they weren't with it because they regurgitate the press releases that they get and a, an editorial line. It's changed, actually. Some of those mainstream journalists have shown a bit more respect, frankly, and have been a bit more cynical about what they've been told by the government. And so we've seen a bit of a change of attitude, but we still have to work hard to find our voice. Get your members motivated. Mick Lynch's handling of the UK media has given the country's trade unions a boost as they continue their strikes. But like Arthur Scargill and the miners, Lynch, the RMT and the rest of Britain's unions face a conservative government that is refusing to back down and is now threatening a new anti-union crackdown. The stage looks set for another conflict, 
one in which the media will again be participants as well as observers. And finally, back to India. For more on the impact the Modi government and its Hindu nationalist narrative has had on the country's news media, we'd recommend watching an episode of The Listening Post that we produced in August of last year. It's a deep dive into the rise of hate speech in the Indian media and the toxic impact that's having on the multicultural, multi-religious fabric of the country. We're leaving you now with an excerpt from that film, a soundbite about the kinds of things that get said on Indian news channels, the idea of the enemy within. You can find the full episode on our YouTube channel or via Al Jazeera's website. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. You have a Hindu community that the media are doing their very best to try and unite. How do they do that? Well, firstly, by positioning the sense of an external enemy, right, against whom then you're all supposed to be united. Most importantly, you don't have to look inside and ask, what actually unites all of us Hindus together? So here you have these anchors telling people what they should think, whom they should approve of, and whom they should disapprove of. And it kind of works.